All right, ladies and gentlemen, comrades and friends, uh, let's uh, let's get started. So there's no particular agenda for this. Just uh, haven't done a call in a little while. So if you have anything that's on your mind, uh, just open, just jump in the queue, and we'll take your call right away. Otherwise, uh, I will just start us off by talking about you know a little bit of what's been on my mind lately. Um, so I think I'm doing an article for Jacobin about Peter Thiel. I just read a biography of him. I guess, is it a biography? I I read a book about, uh, it's called The Contrarian. Um, and I think I might be writing something about it for, uh, for Jacobin. It's... that like in what way it's like sort of productive to do so because there's this certain kind of way that lefties often write about figures like this that I find really unhelpful Uh, because on the one hand I think it's true it's objectively true that somebody like you know a billionaire dabbles in politics, throws around his money, and supports all of these extreme right-wing candidates is obviously dangerous and, uh, you know, bad for what passes for democracy in uh, in the United States. And, you know, even beyond that, I mean, there's a more fundamental issue about the uh, the fact that we have the kind of economic order in which you amass so much wealth in these people's hands that, you know, whatever their pet projects are, you know, if they feel like going into space like Bezos, they could do that. If they, uh, if they feel like, um, you know, getting us on, uh, <laughs> to adapt a, uh, analogy that Bhaskar Sankara used, um, a while ago and that Michael quotes at the beginning of, of against the web, you know, to, uh, you know, he has the whole thing about, um, Finland station, uh, Singapore station and Budapest station. So, um, you know, Finland station is from a classic book, you know, it's where it's talking about Lenin on the train from, uh, from Germany to Gotland station, which is where it's coming into Russia at the beginning of the revolution. So Finland station represents socialism. And then in Bhaskar's use of the metaphor that Michael uses, reuses it against the web, it's, um, you know, Singapore station is like, you know, neoliberal technocratic sort of, uh, mild dystopia that's like very efficient, but, and sort of pluralistic in some ways, but also very authoritarian. And, um, and then Budapest station represents, uh, the, the danger of the resurgent, right? Uh, like, you know, Victor Orban's hungry. And so, yeah, I mean, if you, if you have this much money, then yeah, if you feel like, you know, if this is what you want to do, you want to play with spaceships like Bezos, you can do that. If you want to, uh, play with politics and, uh, and try to take us to Budapest station like Peter Thiel does, you can do that. And that is a very good reason to, uh, to take away these people's money along with all the other very good reasons. So I think that, you know, you could talk about, you know, how, you know, the danger that's, that's posed by right-wing billionaires for sure. But, you know, like I was saying, there's a way that a lot of lefties have of talking about Teal-like figures that I find super unhelpful because it feels to me like there's this kind of article or Substack post or whatnot that people will write about them where the thesis is always, you need to be more afraid of these people. Right. Um, and like, I don't know, I saw something today where the, per- I won't name the author, but you know, the person was talking about how, you know, Teal's vision is darker than, you know, whatever, you know, this other writer they're objected to had said. And I feel like in some ways that's both kind of inaccurate and also feeds into their branding, right? That, um, like somebody like Peter Thiel really wants to be seen as this like evil mastermind who's got it all figured out. And I don't really think that's accurate, right? I think that politically he's actually just pretty incoherent. 
Um, like he's supposed to be a libertarian and like so libertarian that he sometimes in certain moods at certain times of his life has almost sounded like an anarcho capitalist is to start uh, like libertarian colonies on the ocean floor, but then during the Bush years, you know, when he was trying to get contracts for Palantir, he was like, oh, even in the height of the war on terror, the government is too squeamish on privacy. That doesn't sound very libertarian. And then, uh, supposedly, you know, populist. And it seems, well, what's the through line in all of this, right? I mean, it's through and other plutocrats. But the idea that he's like an ideologue in the ways calls, let's just go ahead and start taking him. Uh, let's take Chase. Hey, Ben, how you doing? Good, how are you? Good, how are you? Not too bad. Um... So I guess I had a couple a uh, couple of questions. The first is mm-hmm. um I know you had just read a biography on Teal. Um one of Teal's teachers was the uh late anthropologist Rene Girard. Um I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work at all and I was wondering if he ever came up in uh the biography as an intellectual influence because Teal will cite him occasionally, but I don't see the connection between Gerard and, and Teal from what I can see. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if this person came up in the contrarian. Uh, you might know more about them than I do. Can you can you like fill in a little bit of the backstory about this person? Gerard is a very eccentric, uh, fascinating, and somewhat crazy thinker. He was a, a French anthropologist who um, had a had a kind of novel notion about how uh, desire originates in human mm-hmm. beings, and then that becomes uh, basically uh, what he calls mimetic desire. We, we copy our desires from one yeah. another, and that this creates little rivalries and a kind of Hobbesian struggle, and that the way to resolve this uh, is to uh, for societies to find a scapegoating mechanism, yeah. basically to purge these violent rival, uh, rivaling impulses on one victim. And for Gerard, he, uh, I mean, he, he's a, he's a Christian and he sees mm. Christianity as like a refutation of this scapegoat mechanism. Um, so he's a very, he's a very like original and, uh, some incredibly bizarre thinker, but I did never saw his bearing on Teal, even though Teal cites him as an influence. And I was not sure if he came up at all in that. Well, that's the thing, right? Cause I mean, okay. So first of all, that's interesting, by the way, I will say that, uh, I, I have a, uh, I have a cousin who, um, I, I don't really know Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I've interacted with slightly online. Who's like, a. uh, conservative or at least somebody we would think of as a conservative uh who's who's written stuff about mimetic desire so that's kind of funny i wonder if that's a influence with that dude but anyway um you know the um that would be uh luke burgess but um but in any case yeah i mean i'm sort of as i'm hearing you describe this like i think the like if Teal cites this person and they really didn't come up at all, the contrarian, I mean, that could be, you know, that could be an oversight by the author, but it also could just be like, this might go to my larger point about Teal, right? That like, it's not really that he has some kind of like coherent, but like incredibly dark and disturbing, like driving ideology, Right. I mean, like he could just be kind of a poser. Right. Who like right. doesn't doesn't mean that he's not um, doesn't mean that he's not dangerous. Right. Doesn't mean that he can't do real damage in the world by throwing around his money to support like the worst politicians in the world. Right. I mean, you know, he uh, he clearly can. But um, but I mean, it, it, it might also mean there's just like I, I don't know how coherent he is. I don't know how well read he really is. Right. You know, like it. I mean, in some ways, it's a little bit like the 
the Steve Bannon thing, right? I had somebody mm-hmm. on the show, like the main show on YouTube, uh, a while back who'd written about Bannon and we had an interesting conversation about him and you know, and I, I don't I don't want to say that person doesn't have a point at all. I think that they're probably they do to so you know, he does to a certain extent, but like I I mean the thing I've always sort of thought about Bannon is that like he's another one of these people who's got all this like Prince of Darkness branding going, right? Like right. he he really wants people to think he's edgy and dangerous, but then like I don't know. I mean, like, then you start to think about what he actually says, and a lot of it, you know, like, there's this sort of grandiose rhetoric about history, the fourth turning or whatever, but, like, that he, uh, but then he also has, like, you know, he'll use these phrases like deconstructing the administrative state, and that sounds, like, sort of mysterious and edgy and dangerous. Very impressive somehow. Very impressive somehow, right? I mean, it sort of sounds like a little bit evil, but also a little bit like Foucault, right? You know, but yeah. Uh, yeah. but then, like, what does that actually fucking mean, right? Like, deconstructing the administrative state, how is that not just what, like, any other Republican would mean by, like, deregulation? Right. Right. No, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, it, um, on this topic of Gerard and Teal, I know yeah. there's a video clip you can find on YouTube of Teal saying, you know, Gerard is going to be a a figure that 200 years from now people look at like yeah. they, you know, look at the great intellectuals of the 19th century, you know, Darwin, Marx and things like that. And yeah, but at the same time, I kind of agree. I can't find uh, Gerard's fingerprints really anywhere on uh, what I, what I see as Teal's philosophy. And I was curious if just anything of, of Gerard's ideas came out in that biography. Yeah. I mean, not from what you're describing, like it doesn't really yeah. sound like it to me. Like, and it's also like, okay, so there's, I mean, I, you know, like, cause it, it just seems like a lot of what Teal says, right. There's like, okay, so there's the sort of like Heinlein-y libertarian thing about the, you know, starting anarcho-capitalist colonies in the ocean floor or whatever. Right. And then like, there's, but then there's like also like a phase of Teal where he did like the lectures that became his book that was at zero to one, uh, that where he just like he's sort of doing it's like maybe a at least comparatively smarter version of like it's almost like the art of the deal or something right you know that it's like uh, <laughs> you know it's like oh look at me I'm a super successful businessman I'm going to tell you all my secrets you know and. Um, and then, like, there's stuff that's somewhere in between that's, like, he'll he'll do things, like, that, like, sort of impress maybe a certain kind of journalist as sounding like he's got some sweeping vision, like, maybe, like, a dark one, but, like, some sort of sweeping vision, but, like, sort of sound to me like he's just sort of... <sighs> I don't know. It's like it's like almost like it's like uh, it's almost like just the Facebook meme version of like something about like sort of you know tech guy talking about how great innovation is and like how everybody else sucks. Like uh, the like one of his famous phrases is this thing about like they promised us flying cars and we got 140 characters and it's like okay you know it's like a good line but like with, you know I don't, I don't know I'm, I'm just um, yeah how does it how's it cash out politically. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm ultimately not really sure what you know, like what that actually amounts to. Yeah, I, did you catch the John Gans uh, piece on? Teal uh, yeah, I haven't read the whole thing, but I, I saw it. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought I thought he did a fairly good job, and like, I guess you know, I I, I agree with you. Like, there's something inchoate about the whole yeah. thing, but that that seems to be the case with like fascists generally <laughs> oh that's that's fair right, that's you know? fair yeah <laughs> you know but um i guess my other question was and it's somewhat related is um yeah. one of the people yeah. teal had a, a public debate with was uh, david graber um, oh yeah that's, like, right. Yeah, that's yep. right yep yeah i know that's floating around youtube as well and um i, I was curious if you had Sheesh. read uh graber wengrow's book at all um that came out last year and if you had oh the dot of everything yeah yeah, uh, actually, that's a good reminder. We should do that as a Thursday night debate breakdown. That'd be fun if that's if that's uh, if that's available. But yeah, um, yeah, I, I haven't like uh, I haven't read I haven't read the whole book because it's like uh, 
you know, it's it's a it's a door stopper, <laughs> and uh, you know, too much else going on. But yeah, I mean, I, I know some of I know some of what they say in there. I've heard people talk about it, and you know, I think that like I remember Freddie DeBoer had a thing on a Substack where he's like, you know, critical of the sort of evidence they provide for some of the claims. But like, I I don't know. I mean, it, it certainly sounds interesting. I think that like. From, um, you know, because I'm, I'm doing this uh, this class, like I'm teaching this class right now on Capital, and I did one before that on uh, uh, Gia Cohen's book, Karl Marx's Theory of History. So, like, the thing that kind of comes to mind for, for me with it is, like, okay, does, you know, does this sort of complicate, like, what somebody like Marx thinks about... Uh, you know, primitive communist societies and when and how and why, you know, those kind of went away um, and and were replaced by, you know, by early class societies. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it certainly uh, it certainly sounds interesting. You know, I, I think that's that's definitely like, I mean, honestly, since before David Graver died, you know, some of his books have, you know, obviously that one just came out last year. But like some of those books have, have been on the sort of long kind of to read list in my head um but i I don't know i mean what did you like like what was what were what were your big takeaways from it yeah i i um i love the book i'll confess um and i know uh um i know it's controversial in some quarters and my kind of view was that you know if it's um if it's a 700 page book and it gets some things wrong you know it's just (laughs) one of many volleys you know that's going on and it's you know, um, yeah, I mean, for, for me, the reading, it was kind of like, um, like someone throwing open a bunch of uh, windows and doors in like an old dusty room of Mm -hmm. political theory. Um, and there's a lot, there's a lot you could mine out of it. I mean, there's a lot of just really interesting, um, archeological and anthropological, um, stuff that they bring to the fore, uh, you know, yeah. grave sites dating back 30,000 years of, uh, you know, yeah. children covered in regalia and beads that were mined from, or not mined, but carved from mammoth tusks, you know, just like yeah, interesting, yeah. interesting, cool archeological history. Um, some really good stuff on like the earliest cities in human history and how they predate settled agriculture. And so, this notion of agriculture being like the force that locks us down into class society. Yeah, well, that's that's kind of that's kind of what I was thinking with what I said earlier about kind of complicated Marx, right? Because like, right, you know, because because I think that would be Marx's view because like he thinks that ultimately what uh, drives forward these stages of uh, historical development is like one you know mode of production goes away and another one you know comes up. I mean, in the moment, it's class struggle, but I mean, like, the sort of deeper thing underlying even that, right, for Marx is the development of the forces of production, you know, what the, like, technological capacity of a society is to produce stuff, right? So so on that picture, the agricultural revolution would be, you know, the thing right. that locks us into class society. So, so do, do Graeber and his co-author, do they have a... Um, like, like, what's their alternative view of, of sort of why that transition happens, or do they have one? Because I'm not really clear on that. Yeah, so, I mean, I'd say most of the work is, is, is frankly critical. And then they uh-huh. kind of, they kind of, I, you know, I think of, the, like, the book more as, like, a, a work of meta-history, trying to critique yeah. the foundations of current historical narratives than it is a work of history itself. And I think they, they, they broadly succeed in, in doing that while raising, like, some interesting points. They outline a, a um, uh, an alternative theory of how political power kind of mm. works near the end, but it's not really developed, and they don't develop it into like a historical narrative of, well, how does that lead from from you know uh, pre agricultural societies to you know quote unquote uh, feudalism capitalism you know yeah, uh, yeah, on and yeah. on and but it is it's really interesting stuff like there's a really good chapter on an alternative theory of the state that they give near the end and um um but i would say like probably the thing i i took away from the book that i enjoyed m- the most was um the way in which uh, uh state of nature thought experiments mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. became uh detached 
became not thought experiments, but became the sort of governing meta narrative about how we understand pre-agricultural societies. And the pernicious effect of that is that it relegates people who are our contemporaries or, you know, say, um, uh, indigenous societies in North America who were contemporaries of people, well, still today, but, you know, more actively uh, in the politics of the 19th century and uh, and we're also also probably probably in more of, like, uh, trying to think of how to put this, but, like, the the sort of way of life was was, was probably more different, right, at that point. Yeah, yeah, and I, I like what I think. What I think is kind of neat about the the book is it shows that like what a certain view of of uh, teleology and history does is that it takes people who um, are contemporaries, historical contemporaries, but then uh, you end up viewing them not as historical contemporaries who you might be able to learn things from, who might have a politics of their own, um, yeah. who might be self-conscious reflective political agents it turns them instead into um part of the wilderness you know kind of like how john locke just viewed north america as a barren uncultivated wilderness when we know right now it was anything but you know prior to Mm -hmm. the uh arrival arrival of europeans and um and i thought that was really powerful and interesting you know is uh that's kind of the big takeaway i took from the book is that as long as human beings have been human They've been sort of uh, self-reflective political agents in the way that we imagine us moderns are, but for whatever reason, don't believe pre-moderns were. Yeah, yeah right. Okay, right, so, okay. So, so, they, so they, in some ways, some the ways idea there idea would be there like, be um, like um, um, you know, certainly as a historical fact, fact they're just is no such thing as like a state of nature where people are living outside of societies. Uh, cause probably you, you know, probably before you even get to what we would consider to be human beings, you know, you have societies a little bit, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And so I, I enjoyed the book. There's a lot of good stuff on, uh, you know, um, just the sheer diversity of hunter gatherer societies in the world and why there's good reasons to think that like politics predates settled agriculture and stuff like that. And, um, so there's just a lot of there's a lot of good info in it, and I, I do recommend uh, uh, the book pretty highly. But I will let cool. other people cool. uh, jump on this. All right, fair enough. Um, all right, so I am going to uh, grab uh, Thomas. I also see from the chat. Um, Looks like I was breaking up a little bit earlier. Maybe I'm moving around too much. If so, I apologize for that. I'll try not to do so. But uh, meanwhile, let's uh, let's grab Thomas. Uh, what's in your mind? Hi, Ben. Um, I, I was hoping to get you to expound on something you, you briefly mentioned on Twitter. Sure. Um, which was a reference to the... Uh, recent uh, sublation article uh, by Will Stratford uh, that was at the time, I don't know, I think they changed the title or something, but it was titled Bhaskar Sankara is Blocking Socialism. Yeah. Um, try to think what I said about that on Twitter. Yeah, so look, I think that the the first thing I would say about that is that that is just a majestically silly title, right? Like, because whatever you think about uh, Bhaskar and his, his politics. I mean, the idea that, um, you know, the idea that that would be, uh, that like, there's literally anything that he could do, right. That would, that would block socialism, I think is, um, I think is, is just kind of psychotic. I mean, like, I, I don't, um, I don't understand how somebody who could write that title would, would see the world, right. You know, how, um, you know, what the sort of viewpoint is from which that would make sense, right? I mean, now you could say that, uh, like, you could have something boring, like Bhaskar Sankara's political strategy is counterproductive or something like that, and then we could argue about whether that's true, right? But, I mean, like, now you're, like, within the realm of sanity, right? I mean, you're within the range of things that, like, 
could be true, right? And then we could have an argument about whether they uh, they are true. Uh, yeah, I, I think, think that's the case made in the article, basically, like that it's in that his political strategy is an obstacle to socialism because it muddies the idea of what socialism is. I guess generally, right, would be the argument that they're making. Yeah. So, uh, so I certainly, I mean, I, I saw that they, you know, published this thing with that headline, which again. I mean, I don't. I think anybody who believes that the headline's true belongs in a mental institution. But I think that the, um, but uh, but then if you want to say it's like, well, it's it's not what's you know, it's not you know, it's not what's blocking socialism, right? That the, you know, on the list of reasons why you know we don't have socialism, no sane person could possibly think that belongs in the top one hundred million. But uh, if you but yeah, so we could, uh, but you know, you could make this case. I mean, I, I started to read it. I thought that it was like not only uncharitable, but like really lazy in the writing style that like uh, it didn't even quote the, or mention, I think, uh, the book uh, where he actually spends the entire book arguing for this political strategy and sort of explains it in the greater depth, which with greatest depth, which is, you know, which is just kind of, um, like basically seems like not really doing your homework before you write an article. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that that muddy in the waters critique, right? Like, and, and I also think that like some of it just like, I mean, it was some of what I read, it was just so uncharitable that it just, it's, it's just not really capable of engaging with the substance of anything that he thinks, because it's like, um, you know, you do have to stop at a certain point and ask yourself, well, you know, why would he say that? What would, what is he, how could he think these two statements are compatible or whatever? And at least like sort of sit with that thought for 45 seconds instead of just kind of taking your, you know, your organization's party line and typing, you know, which is what this felt like to me. But yeah, I mean, I think that that sort of substantive point that you mentioned, right? This sort of, uh, well, okay, is this like muddy in the waters and does muddy in the waters make the emergence of you know a movement that in the very long term you know could uh could actually deliver socialism uh less likely i mean that's worth um you know i think that's certainly worth talking about so i mean it sounds like you're probably more sympathetic to that critique than than i am so i mean you want to just kind of spend a minute like you know like like kind of laying out the case uh sure yeah i I guess i guess the argument would just generally be that um I guess their objection would be, they would say, okay, our conception of socialism, what they would say would be Marx's or the Second International's conception yeah. of socialism, uh, is very antithetical to sort of welfare state politics and yeah. is antithetical to like working within uh, capitalist politics, opposition yeah. to the capitalist state, et cetera. And so when a major figure on the left is sort of pushing for a strategy that does all those things and calling that socialism, they would say that that sort of, uh, that, that leads. Oh, sorry. I think, I think you cut off for me for oh, a second. Sorry. That might be because of my, 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 my phone. So the last thing I heard was calling that socialism. Right. Oh yeah. So that would become that that would lead to an obfuscation of what socialism is and thus be sort of an obstacle to its achievement and that it leaves people more confused. Okay. So let's, let's talk about that, right? Like, uh, like it, cause at least in that presentation, uh, it sounds like the major issue is sort of like, you know, what we mean by, well, there's a little bit about strategy there. Cause you talked about, you know, sort of attitude towards the capitalist state, which is maybe, you know, like another issue that's worth talking about in itself in a second, but like in, um, Oh, hold on just a second. So, sorry about that. Um, yeah, so then, but then the other issue is like, what do you mean by socialism? So, you know, that one's probably useful to start with. And I think that Bhaskar has been, a, you know, 
like again, especially you know, if you're not talking about like you know, what he says in the transcript of some discussion that, you know, might go all over the place depending on, you know, the flow of the conversation, but you're talking about his major, you know, his major work on this, right? His book, um, and not just the book, of course, many other places too, but certainly there, um, certainly, you know, debates that he's done, etc. Like, he's been very clear on what he means by socialism, which is... Um, a new economic system based on um, collective ownership and workers' control of the means of production that comes after capitalism, right? Like, I I don't think there's any ambiguity about that. Now, how, um, you know, and I should also say, just to put my own cards on the table, you know, for the sake of full disclosure here, that the book that I'm writing, uh, that I'm co-writing with Bhaskar and also with Mike Beggs, for Verso is about sort of fleshing out what that might look like. It's called the blueprint. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, the fact that like, that's the first chapter of the socialist manifestos describing what he thinks a socialist society would be like, how it would work. Um, and then, you know, he's co-writing this entire new book that's entirely about that subject. So I, I think he's been pretty clear on that. Right. So then that may be now, um, depending on what your what Stratford's sort of vision of socialism is we could you know maybe they would argue that even that doesn't count as socialism because it's only socialism if you've like overcome the commodity form maybe that's something that some Marxists say although I sort of suspect that Stratford is not one of them if only because I kind of well uh, what I've heard, at least, is the, the group is part of Platypus, that, that that's not typically the, the sort of party line there. But, you know, who knows? Uh, maybe he's one of them, in which case there might be real disagreements about what counts as socialism. But, I mean, certainly if you think that, you know, expropriating the capitalists and, you know, having um, having an economy where, you know, maybe some of it's, you know, planned at the commanded heights, but certainly there's some form of worker control. There isn't a division between labor and capital, the whole economy. You know, if you think that would count as socialism, right, then... Uh, I think they might say that's the dictatorship of the proletariat, but not socialism yet. Uh, maybe. Labor abolishes itself. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the, what was the last they, part again? They would say not until labor abolishes itself and, you know, the state has withered away. So but, I, understand, I understand the part about the state withered away, um, although I would say this is probably just a, you know... I don't want to put words in Bhaskar's mouth, although I think he would agree with this, but certainly just in terms of my own views, like this might be a substantive disagreement that like I'm very, I'm not an orthodox enough Marxist to be convinced that the state could ever completely wither away. Um, but, um, and I think, you know, I, I think it, you know, maybe can to, to some extent, but I think that there are certain things that you're always, even in sort of 23rd century kind of, high-tech ultra-advanced communism you know i'm not i'm not convinced that you'll ever sort of overcome the need for certain kinds of you know very state-like functions that you're going to have to be carried out in certain ways that like you know i I think at that point you might as well call it a state i mean like you might have the view that like um you know it's only a state if it's an organ of class rule or something like that um you know i think that's kind of an unhelpful way to talk um i mean as far as labor abolishing itself i think there's some ambiguity there right like i i don't know what i mean you can correct me right because because i don't think these are like jointly exhaustive of the options right but like two of the things that could mean certainly right that i could imagine somebody meeting when they said that were one that like labor has abolished itself in the sense that you've abolished you know, class antagonisms that you no longer have this class of the population that has to, you know, to sell its labor power to the capitalist class, in which case now that definition, certainly in what somebody like Bhaskar means by socialism or what I would mean by socialism, that would count as labor abolishing itself. Another definition maybe, again, might be the sort of definition that would take us into the realm of like value theory, like maybe, um, like 
you know, maybe as long as you're sort of, um, you know, as long as there are things that are being produced to be sold, then you, there might, there, there's like a, a kind of Marxist thinking that would say that that would be like, even if it's all um, owned in some sort of socialized way or another, right, there's no capitalist ownership relations anymore, that you still have like value like embodied in the commodities and even if, you know, workers are like owning or running uh, enterprises or, uh, you know, or a democratic state with no capitalist classes doing that then or some combination of the two, then it would sort of labor wouldn't have abolished itself in that sense. And I know that's not a great explanation. I, I often feel when I'm talking to people who have this line that I'm not, um, I'm my suspicion about them Right, my uncharitable suspicion about them is that like it might be a little vague what they mean even to them, right? What would count as overcoming that? And uh I certainly it's certainly at least vague in my mind, right, what they would count as overcoming that. Again, maybe that's all unfair, right? But I mean like that's that would be another thing that you could mean. There there could be a third thing that labor abolishing itself might mean that I'm just not tracking. Yeah. Yeah, I think they mean maybe something closer to the third. Um I think, I think maybe they might say that it's not entirely clear to them what it is, uh. and like because we can't know yet exactly. Like they would say, maybe it's like full automation or something, but who knows? That's just a guess. We can only know once we've progressed further towards that. You know? Yeah. Okay. Sure. I understand how that line goes. Um, I would also say, I mean, in terms of the dictatorship of the proletariat, I know that those platypus guys they love that phrase right i mean they use it all the time oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, i would i would point out that it it only appears in marx and engels ahead they say so little about it that i think there's a lot of ambiguity about what that means too right like um because uh because like and i would even i mean they, maybe this is taking us too far off course from what you want to talk about if so we, we don't need to you know we don't need to get deep into this but like when I look at some of what they write about that and try to figure it out, uh, which again is like not that many passages when you put them all together in Marx and Engels where they use that phrase, as far as I know, um, then it it kind of seems to me like what that means is not so much a society where the capitalist class has already been expropriated past tense as one that's maybe sort of in the process of expropriating it. Like I remember uh, there's something that's on the Marxist internet archive. You can find that's like Marx's like notes on like something that Bakunin had written. Um, and he, and like, so he'll just like quote, you know, there'll just be a big chunk of Bakunin and then there'll be like Marx's comments on it. And I remember in that, which yeah, I wish I, I wish I, remembered off the top of my head what it's called but i think just from what i've said it's like got to be like late 1860s early 1870s you could probably find it on the Marxist internet archive but um but i think in there i remember you know he makes this comment that's actually kind of you know i think a rare marx l in terms of later history but i mean where he says well becuted seems to think the dictatorship of the proletariat will sort of be like you know, waging war on the small peasantry, but don't worry about it. They know not to do that. They they know not to try to expropriate all of these small peasant owners, you know, uh, in one fell swoop, um, which, I mean, again, is a little, you know, if you consider the Bolsheviks, uh, you know, the late teens and 20s to have been the dictators to the proletariat, I mean, like, I, I think uh, Bakunin might have been more prescient about that, but, like, whatever, that's, that's not the point, right? The point is that, like, that's one of the things that makes me think that they're really imagining the sort of thing where like the workers have kind of taken over the political power, but they're still in the process of expropriating the capitalists. Another thing that makes me think that is that uh, famously um, they say somewhere that the, like, if you want to know what the dictatorship of the proletariat looks like, look at the Paris commune. And of course the Paris commune did not right, completely expropriate all the capitalists and, you know, put nationalize everything or put everything under, you know, control or anything like that. They did some, right? They they uh they turned over some uh factories that had been abandoned by 
you know, by owners who fled to Versailles to, um, to workers' associations to reopen um, in a very decentralized way, right? But, like, that's, um, you know, but, like, I think there are plenty of, you know, unexpropriated capitalists in Paris right up until they were all massacred, you know, everybody in the commune. So, um, so anyway, that's my read on what they mean by that. That might not be super relevant to, to any of this. That just, what you said made me think of that. I think that the, but like, okay, so that's, so that's one thing, right? There might just be a disagreement between Bhaskar or me on the one hand and Strafford and, you know, and, and his comrades on the other hand about, uh, what would count as having achieved socialism versus like, a dictatorship the proletariat where maybe socialism is only like kind of roughly what people are thinking of when they talk about like fully automated luxury communism or something and anything up till then is still just the transition to socialism so that might be you know that might just be a point of substantive disagreement uh about about definitions i would still say though that like i i do i do think Bhaskar is very clear in the socialist manifesto and other places that he doesn't he doesn't you know he doesn't think just like achieving welfare state programs within capitalism is socialism. I think that he thinks that it's an important uh, short-term goal, right? And, you know, again, maybe there are subjects to, you know, like real, like non-ridiculous disagreements you could have with that, right? Because this is exactly the kind of thing the socialist movement has historically been, had all sorts of internal disagreements about, right? Is the, is sort of struggling for reforms within capitalism, is that something that sort of um, like is that something that can help um, sort of lead to the greater kind of organization and militancy and all that stuff of the working class and lay the groundwork for deeper struggles um, like think about like you mentioned the second international earlier right so in this party's the second international there's this idea that you have like the minimum program and the maximum program right the minimum program are like reforms that you're agitating for within capitalism. The maximum program is, you know, implementing socialism, right? Going back, you know, beyond capitalism entirely. Whereas like, you know, you have, um, you know, the communist international, at least in certain phases was completely opposed to that kind of thinking in other phases. They kind of agreed and like Trotsky, the fourth international, um, had this idea that, like, no, you shouldn't have minimum demands and maximum, you know, shouldn't have a minimum program and a maximum program. What you should have is a transitional program where you, you're, like, advocating things that can't be achieved within capitalism. And then when people struggle for them and realize they can't be achieved within capitalism, then they'll, like, charge forward to socialism, which, you know, my, you know, my take on that, right, would be that that... That only really makes any sense to me if you sort of assume that we're kind of on the brink of revolution, which Trotsky certainly did, right? And this this maybe takes us back to the, you know, why I find that title so astonishing, right? You know, because it's like, okay, Trotsky in 1938, right, in, in this pamphlet that he wrote called The Transitional Program, the opening line is, this might be slightly wrong, but I think this is pretty much it, right? The, the um uh, crisis of capitalism is ultimately a crisis of leadership in the working class, um, which, you know, might have been true in 1938. I think it was probably more true in some places than others in 1938. Uh, but um, one place that that's just emphatically not true is America in 2022, right? I mean, the, uh, it's not like the, the sort of the primary obstacle to achieving socialism or achieving the dictatorship of the proletariat, maybe in America in 2022 is the, um, is like the working class having bad leadership, right? I mean, we, we don't have, you know, we don't really have an organized working class at all. Right. I mean, like even in terms of just sort of basic trade union stuff, I mean, we have a, like a 6.7% rate of, uh, of private sector unionization, Right. There aren't, um, you know, et cetera. Right. So like it, it seems to me that the um, that, you know, our our problems are much more basic. Right. Than like, you know, oh, look at these like prominent socialist who like has the wrong political line or whatever. Right. That we, we have much more basic problems than that. And in that, you know, so Bhaskar's view. Right. And I don't know. 
maybe later in the article than what I was looking at, maybe Strafford kind of gives it his due, right? But I mean, Boscar's view about this, all this, like that book, The Socialist Manifesto, is pretty much entirely after the first chapter, which is like describing how he thinks socialism will work. After that, right, it's historical and it's like 90% of the rest of the book is about arguing for this this view, right? Is that um, social democracy is important, but it's insufficient, not only sort of for ideological reasons that um, labor hasn't abolished itself in the first sense, right? That, you know, you still have... Uh, you know, workers are still forced to sell their labor power to make a living, you know, and, and uh, thus to, you know, like democracy isn't, you know, isn't extended to the workplace, but also uh, for practical reasons, right? And the practical reasons is the big historical argument in the book, right? That Bhaskar thinks, well, look, if you have, uh, if you achieve like big social democratic reforms, right, these kind of important gains for the working class, like, you know, I mean, in this ridiculous backward country, right, uh, just nationalized health insurance would be a huge gain for the working class because not only because they would like make people's workers' lives better, but also because it would, you know, mean the just didn't have that to hold over you if you got out of line, right? You know, that you that if you lose your job, you know, you don't have health insurance anymore. Uh, so, I mean, like that, that would make a real difference to the, you know, balance of class forces. But like, but if you achieve stuff like that, or like, let's say you go way further than that, that you've gone like, you've gone way out to the limits of what could be achieved under capitalism, which obviously we're hilariously and tragically far from that in America in 2022, but arguably like Sweden in the 70s might be an example of a society where the welfare state had gotten so big and unions were so strong that like what you could kind of achieve within capitalism was like really nearing its limitations. And at that point, uh, Bosco's view would be you sort of have a choice, right? Either you can go forward and and um, and take over the means of production, uh, which uh, which you'd have a motivation to do, not just for this, of course, sort of ideological reason, because he's kind of skeptical that that alone is really realistically going to be the primary, you know, motivator, right? But like for most people, at least. Uh, but but also just for the sake of securing the gains that have already been won, because he thinks if you don't go forward and, I don't know, as the late Michael Brooks, I remember putting it, you know, start like taking some pieces off the board by democratizing the economy, right? Uh, then uh, capitalists will always have this incentive as soon as they think they have a political opening to try to roll back the gains that have already been won, right? This is the metaphor Rosa Luxemburg, I think, has in Reformer Revolution about you know, Sisyphus, right? You know, that you're rolling the boulder up the hill, then it just rolls back down, right? Yeah. That, the, uh, that the capitalists undo it all as soon as they have a chance, right? So uh, I, have a, so I think that... Sorry, I have yeah, please, please. Ahead. No, no, you go, you go. Because yep. I, I think you probably know a lot more about this history than I do. But in 70s Sweden, like, was the... Was there, like, a real, like, I don't know for lack of a better term, like, revolutionary, like, working-class movement, like, did achieving the highest you can achieve under capitalism actually uh, produce that possibility, or did it negate it, right? Yeah, like, so, were we closer to, like, achieving socialism uh, when, when the socialists opposed the welfare state? Like, was there mm -hmm. more of a potential there? Or but, was, but, but, when, but when was that? When were socialists opposing the welfare state? Well, I mean, like, as far as it existed at the time, like, you know, like, I don't know, like 1917, for instance. 1917. Right? I don't know. I don't know. Right? You know, that whole thing. I don't know. I mean, like, I don't, I don't really, I mean, maybe you could correct me on this. I know there were socialists who were sort of super disdainful of, of any kind of, uh, of any kind of like achievable reform demand. Although I think when Marx said, I'm not a Marxist, he was actually kind of writing in opposition to people like that, right? I mean, so it's certainly true that you might have kind of a fringe of socialists who might say like, well, any reforms we achieve within capitalism are just bad because they, they'll just pacify people. But I don't really think that was ever the sort of dominant mainstream position of the socialist movement in any country as far as i know about like you, you you mentioned 1917 right so it's like um you know that's not like you know the uh i mean the bolsheviks were constantly i mean i guess you could say well this is different because it's like transitional demands you know but i mean like 
you know, I mean, the, the Bolsheviks were constantly demanding things that could, that seem like that could be achieved within capitalism, right? I mean, the, uh, you know, land, peace, bread, right? You know, give give some land to the peasants, you know, from the big estates, and and uh, and and withdraw from Russian participation in in World War One, and uh, you know, uh, and and do something about the food crisis. I mean, you know, at least a couple of those. Surely, there is some scenario where you could possibly achieve those within capitalism. I would think. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think I think they probably would have thought that at in that time and place, like those would be conjecturally, you can't actually achieve those under capitalism. Yeah, that could be, I mean, I I mean, Oh yeah, please. To bring out the example of the, like the SP day and their classic, like Uh not one penny, not one man for, for this, for this government or the system. I feel it is. Um, right. Where they would sort of just vote against everything where like, Uh like we would support, we might like support like a policy, for instance, like the, like the workday like yeah. restrictions because that directly limits the power of the capitalist over the worker. Yeah. But otherwise, like we're just like voting. We'll, we'll, we'll participate in elections like as our own independent working party, right? Does 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 Marx does Marx ever say that elected socialist representatives should just vote no to everything? No, no. But it, uh, obviously, like Babel was like one of his disciples, and I think. Like sort of no, I, I, I mean, I know that. Yeah, yeah, I know that was the line of you know that you just you know sort of vote no to every budget, and that's. I mean, I, th- I think there's an interesting question there about how much that's like a sort of a response to like sort of specific things about how much its stuff worked in those uh, in those countries and those systems at that time, and how much it's sort of a there's a sort of more general principle and if it is a principle how much that's like a strategy that's sort of crafted for particular conditions or whatever and i, I don't i'm not going to claim that i have a lot to say in depth about that i know another book uh you know graber was mentioned earlier uh another book that uh i would really like to read sometime that a bunch of time opened up is the eric blanc book about uh you know revolutionary social democracy where you know he's he's talking that just came out where he's kind of talking about um the sort of strategy that the Bolsheviks were using and the kind of relationship between that and, and other sort of uh, social democratic parties around the world at the time. And so maybe, and I know he's in, I know blank somebody who's interested in thinking about how you can sort of, if or how you can kind of apply lessons to one for the other. So anyway, I definitely like to read that, but let, but I mean, like you mentioned the work day, right? And that's really, I don't think that's a minor sort of counterexample. I think that's like a pretty significant one because this is like in Capital, right? In, in uh, you know, Chapter Ten of Capital, right? The, one of the longest things in the book, right? You know, he has uh, that's like the end of it, and that's the that's like the first time in the book that he's really talking about class struggle, and like he has in Capital, and then also in his uh, inaugural address to the First International, you know, he talks about these laws limiting the working day as this like major, massively important victory for the working class. Uh, and, um, you know, this, so it's this like important victory of the class war. And so I, I do wonder why, you know, like you said, well, maybe you make an exception for something like the workday laws, because that's something that like, you know, gives the working class more power. But I wonder if you can't say that about a, like at least universalist as opposed to means tested, right? At least universal, uh, welfare state programs more generally, Right, that those things, you know, that those things empower, you know, the uh, empower the working class. I mean, like, I a, think and, the, you know, the, the, the argument would be that they make the working class dependent on the state as opposed to like empowering them, like outside of the state. Um, sort of like, but, but, but couldn't you make this? Oh, sorry. You, I was just going to ask, couldn't you make the same argument about uh, legislation to limit the working day? I don't know that that's, I mean, maybe a li- I think a little bit, I think less so, but I think. Why, why, why less? I mean, like, a, I mean, you have like the, I mean, Marx talks about this in capital, right? You've got the, this whole system of like factory inspectors going around to make sure that, you know, that the, you know, the working day restrictions are being followed. Like, um, I mean, this is. I mean, I can see a sense in which you can say that, like, universal health care, say, would, like, 
make people dependent on the state because they have a, you know, the state is providing this, this important thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, like they're, they're dependent but on like, their healthcare for the state. Like working out. Yeah, sure. The, like the same sense that you're dependent on the factory inspectors to enforce the, uh, the 12 hours law, right? Like, or like, yeah, and, but that's, and, I don't know. Like you, like, you've already worked more hours in the past. Like it's not, it's not so tangible a thing as like you're depending on like well, healthcare or like dollar. You know what I mean? I'm like, not, I'm not sure I get that last argument, right? Why is it less tangible? I, I think there's something about, I'm sort of trying to think about this, you know, at the moment. Sure, sure. But, yeah. um, I don't know. I think there's something about having your work hours, I don't know. It's like I like I don't like when I think of myself. Like I don't think of myself as depending on the state. Like I wouldn't think about work hours in that same sense that I would think about like receiving, you know, uh, or, or or are you an American? Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so like the only reason I was asking that is is I wonder if I wonder if you would think of it that way if you if you lived in a place if you were living in a place that did have um, you know, universal, non-means-tested, you know, public health care, right? That, um, cause, cause I think that it's like, yeah, you're right. I mean, that like, once you've got like, uh, you know, 12 or 10 or ultimately eight hours or less, if you're in France, I guess, uh, law in place, um, that it does sort of fade into the background, right? You don't really think about it on an ongoing basis, but I, I think the same, I mean, certainly, I mean, I guess I was in, lived in South Korea for a few years. They have kind of a weird healthcare system, although a little bit even there, right? But it's like, I, I, I guess I would sort of think of it the same way that like the regulatory state, which is what we're all ultimately talking about with the, you know, with like work hour limitations, that like, you know, you know, you've got a way of like seeking legal redress if they do work you more hours than that, you know, there's this enforcement mechanism, but like, if it sort of feels like the battle is won, you know, it all kind of fades into the background and you don't think about it, right? I mean, I think the same thing would be true. Uh, it certainly fits with what people have described to me, right, about their experience of healthcare in, like, Britain, say, or, you know, Canada even, right? You know, that, like, um, that like it just sort of means you don't think about it anymore, right? I mean, you just, I mean, whatever. You go to the hospital if you get sick or whatever, but, I mean, it's like it's sort of, you know, you don't, like, the healthcare system is not really a... Unless you happen to, unless you're thinking about politics, right? Like what people are promising they'll do at an election or whatever. Outside of that context, right? You know, you don't really think about, um, you know, like the healthcare system doesn't really loom in your imagination, you know, the way it does if you're worried about losing your health insurance, because that's the whole thing, right? The, the the sort of great liberation of that from the perspectives of somebody who actually has health insurance is that you don't, you know, that like that's just a load off your mind you're just not worried about losing that anymore um and any, anyway all of which is to say i mean maybe you just have a different intuition about this the cases seem you know the sort of universalist welfare state case and the regulatory state case seems similar to me but I, I guess i'd maybe ask you a different question which is like how do you feel about um you know how do you feel about the uh um about like gains made by the working class within the system just by like labor unions right because it's like if you have um you know if you because like if you get some benefit like as as part of this you know like as part of the collective bargaining at the end of the strike you know you get some new benefit then you know you are um i mean you could say you're relying on your employer for the continuing providing of that benefit right um but i mean is that is that bad does that make people less likely to to want to expropriate that employer at some point in the future i mean do you have a a take on that uh no that's a good question um i mean i would say that there are limits to sort of to the to what a union can get you right it can only get yeah. you basically like whatever amount of money you're actually like whatever amount of money you're due, right? Basically yeah, like, yeah. we can get you more money and yeah, you know, that can be in benefits or whatever. But, um, 
I don't know that that necessarily, I would say that, you know, at least in my understanding, Marx would think of this as like a training ground for working uh-huh. class power, right? Where we can independently organize ourselves in civil society and like extract like concessions and then, oh, maybe we can do a little more. Right? Yeah, I, yeah, right. So I, I think maybe the, insofar as, as we're talking about disagreement, not about like what counts as socialism, um, you know, the sort of muddy the water stuff, but insofar as we're talking about disagreement about socialist strategy, I suspect that this is what it gets down to, right? Like, in other words, do you think, I mean, I'm not asking this because I, I know your answer, but I mean, just as a rhetorical question, right? Just, just fra- you know, framing the, uh, framing the, the, uh, the disagreement, right? Um, that, like, so I think the real question is, like, do you think that there is a meaningful analogy between the way you just described the sort of value of winning concessions from employers through like trade union activity on the one hand and kind of winning concessions for the capitalist class as a whole through, you know, like parliamentary, you know, um, you know, through political activity, right. You know, through like, you know, elected socialist parties to parliament through whatever sort of extra parliamentary, you know, means of bringing pressure on that you have to, to add to that. Right. And I think that like maybe you or Stratford or other people might say, no, those aren't really, those aren't the same. Right. You know, and then like, whereas I think somebody like Bhaskar or me might say, um, that, uh, that's, um, um, uh, might say that, you know, we do think that there's like, you know, maybe they're not exactly the same, but we do think that there's like more of a suggestive analogy, you know, between those two things. And like, you know, certainly bringing it back to Sweden, just because you asked about this, I never really answered. Um, so, you know, in Sweden in the 70s, I mean, part of the reason that I think that that, you know, you asked if there was like a revolutionary socialist movement, and I think probably not in the sense that you made. I mean, I think there's another there's a whole other can of worms we could, we could open up here about what like a revolution, like what a transition to socialism could plausibly look like in a, you know, advanced prosperous capitalist democracy. I, I'm and like the idea of like a Kautskyite style, like we take uh, kind of, like through elections, not necessarily by, you know. gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I think there was like, I think there was maybe an extremely, sort of watered down version of one in a sense, right? Because like in, um, you know, I don't know, maybe this is all history, you know, but like in the 70s, there's a point where the um, Swedish Labor Party endorsed something called the Minder Plan, which would have been this kind of weird, like sort of slow motion transfer of ownership, uh, you know, to to workers, which I think was off was like defeated and pretty much the way you think it would be defeated, right? You know, that they, cause like there was a, um, like, you know, they, you know, they passed this plan, right. You know, which would have done this, this kind of like slow motion, like, you know, kind of transfer of like a certain number of share, you know, shares of companies over time. So at the end of however many years, right. It would have, uh, it would have resulted in, you know, essentially the expropriation of at least big capitalists in Sweden. And they like sang the international the party Congress where they, you know, they agreed on this. And then as one would imagine, the entire rest of the Swedish establishment freaked out. There was this massive right wing mobilization and they ended up backing down. Right. So the, um, so I think the, I mean, beyond sort of questions you could raise about whether expropriation could ever really happen that way. And I'm actually sympathetic to the idea that it probably couldn't, right. That it's like, you'd, like anytime you're going to try to do it in a very slow motion way, you know, probably that's just not politically realistic. You would have just kind of had to, you know, cut the Gordian knot there, but like, yeah. uh, but beyond that, right. I think they, I think there's like another interesting question there about like, okay, is there an alternate timeline where they like, um, you know, where they zigged instead of zagged and like they, they did a better job of sticking to their guns and overcoming this right wing mobilization against them and all that stuff. Right. Where you can sort of say like, I mean, maybe an ext- you know, I mean, take all the limits of this metaphor as a given, right. You know, but like, um, but I mean, kind of the way that like when Abraham Lincoln was elected, his platform wasn't the immediate abolition of slavery. It was like, we're going to slowly squeeze out the slave system 
and then the slave owners rebelled and you know and, and they actually did you know zig instead of zagging right you know they actually did say okay well in that case in order for the sake of of defeating you in the struggle we actually are gonna uh eventually you know do the immediate abolition of of slavery right just a few years later right like is there some sort of scenario where that would have happened and maybe not and if not then the question is well is there a way of doing this like i mean there is like a pessimistic reading here which is just like look uh given the sort of power imbalances whatever maybe it would just take some incredible combination of circumstances to actually get uh to actually take the leap right because there's just so many kind of built-in pressures not to and there's so much more structural power you know whatever like i don't know right like i think that the i think it is true that like part of what it meant to say that like sweden maybe right had like kind of taken social democracy to its limits was that you did have this incredibly militant labor movement that was like constantly you know that like you know was was like horrible for profits because people would just go on strike all the time and whatever you know but like um is there a better version of that strategy you know that would have actually uh actually succeeded in um uh you know that would have like built up the kind of movement that when it was faced with those cross that crossroad would have actually you know taken the leap instead of retreating and i i guess i can't claim to know for sure right in advance i really hope so right because i think that if not i'm just very skeptical that there's that there's like a a path right that for like advanced capitalist democracies that doesn't that doesn't involve a lot of social democratic stuff, right? That like, I'm, I mean, maybe I'm just wrong about this. Or maybe I'll be proven wrong in the coming decades, right? But it's like where my skepticism really comes in is like I just have a really hard time imagining um, sort of mobilizing, you know, in America starting in 2020, whatever, you know, we're starting, right? Like sort of mobilizing a mass movement that, that doesn't, need to have some points on the board to sort of sustain itself and, you know, and, and like keep spirits up and whatever that like, that could just sort of, that could just sort of have this absolutist position that's like, nope, we're never supporting anything uh, that, you know, that we could possibly get in until such time as we control all the levers of government and we can just implement socialism. Uh, I have a really hard time imagining that. I mean, I know that that's not an argument. I'm just trying to like, you know, put my cards in the on the table about where I'm coming from. Right. So, so given that I have such a hard time imagining that, uh, I, I would at least really like to think that there's a way of doing the, you know, social democratic strategy that maybe puts questions of ownership on the table earlier. That is like that, you know, somehow or another learns the lessons from those past defeats in ways that make it more, able to uh to actually carry it through all the way once you get to those crossroads but like i'm also not gonna like sit here and pretend like i haven't figured out exactly what that looks like you know because i definitely do not okay um i am uh this is these were actually both both super interesting calls i'm i'm glad i did this tonight and um thank you ben i I have to admit it was a great conversation thank you for doing this all right thanks yeah thanks thomas uh, I will admit when you when you started up and you were asking me about that article, I wasn't sure where this was going, but this is actually a really interesting conversation. So uh, that's uh, so I'm, I'm I'm glad you know I'm, I'm glad we had it. So anyway, I think I'm going to cut it off there for tonight. But uh, but yeah, thanks to both of you for uh, for calling in uh, the episode the of the main show on YouTube tomorrow night. Um, is going to be with Adam Proctor from the Dead Pundit Society, which should be a fun one. So I will see people then. Left.